This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog, here on RN. Well, it's been a big week for the Republican Party in the United States. A big week for one of its members, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, and maybe ultimately something of a tipping point for American politics. So it's hard to judge that amidst the multiple dramas convulsing their system right now. Liz Cheney's thrown down the gauntlet to her party, having been well and truly gazumped last week in the Wyoming primary that she won just two years ago easily uh, by the Trump-endorsed candidate Harriet Hageman. Uh, It was a contest she said she knew she'd lose. Now, this is a woman who's been dubbed as close as a politician gets to personifying the Stars and Stripes. But, of course, she's not in the Donald Trump camp and being knocked out of the modern Republican Party is the price you pay for speaking out against him. Here's a little of what she had to say in her concession speech. We must be very clear-eyed about the threat we face and about what is required to defeat it. I have said since January 6th, that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office, and I mean it. This is a fight for all of us together. I'm a conservative Republican. I believe deeply in the principles and the ideals on which my party was founded. I love its history, and I love what our party has stood for. But I love my country more. So I ask you tonight to join me. As we leave here, let us resolve that we will stand together, Republicans, Democrats, and independents, against those who would destroy our republic. They are angry and they are determined, but they have not seen anything like the power of Americans united in defense of our Constitution and committed to the cause of freedom. Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, and do read the full speech if you have the chance. It's quite something. A true fight-back declaration, and it hints at how she might utilise her powerful status. To review recent developments in the Republican Party especially, as well as the broader US, I'm delighted that Thomas Mann, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institute, could join us, along with Nick Bryant, who's now senior fellow at Sydney University, but previously, of course, was with the BBC and very well-versed in American political history, having completed a doctorate on the subject. Thank you both for joining me. Happy to be with you. Um, Tom Mann, one commentator I think put it quite well. Her defiant speech could be reduced to a single message. This is round one. Now, do you think that's fair? Uh, That that assumes that uh, there'll be a round two and three and four and five. Uh, uh, Certainly... Liz Cheney is a breath of fresh air in American politics, someone who speaks honestly about the radicalization of the Republican Party and, and its loyalty to the, the ultra-authoritarian uh, populist uh, Donald Trump. So it's, it's marvelous to have her uh, in this effort. Uh, she's She's the vice chair of the January 6th committee and has been doing a superb job with that. And that work will continue through through the fall. Um, 
I have no doubt Liz Cheney will will do everything she can to keep Donald Trump out of the White House. But the problem is that she has relatively little basis or power for doing doing that, Uh, number one. And number two, even if she were successful, she'd leave behind a a Republican Party that uh, is the least Democratic Hmm. uh, major party in... uh, in the world. Well, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of commentary. I'm picking and choosing. But uh, one commentator said to save the party, she might first have to destroy it. So I don't think anybody's imagining that she's going to seriously get there in an orthodox way, whatever get there means. But might she not act as a sufficient spoiler to have to force the Republicans to think again a bit or not? Well, I would like her to be able to do that. But, you know, we have such a, a dreadful uh, political system. Uh, I wish we had ranked choice voting, uh, as, uh, as you Aussies do. Uh, uh, but third, third parties often, uh, or independent candidacies in the presidential election, can have uh, perverse effects. Uh, uh, she might threaten uh, Trump and the Republicans with with a run, but it's not obvious, A, that she would attract uh, major support, and two, who would she hurt most? So it's, it's good to have her thinking about this, to be so motivated, to look for ways of, uh, of, uh, of taunting Trump, of... Mm-hmm. Uh, Increasing the likelihood of uh, his uh, his troubles with the Justice Department, um, uh, and I wish her well. But I but I think uh, the road ahead is uh, is a very yeah. difficult one. Nick, We've had. Let, let me just go to Nick because you've got. I was thinking of an overview of history, looking at the role of Ross Perot uh, as a third party candidate, very well cashed up, of course, which allowed Bill Clinton to come through the middle. I don't think a lot of Republicans have forgotten that uh, back in the 90s. Um, how would you see her options? Rossborough is a really interesting case study because, as Tom will tell you, if you actually look at the polling afterwards about who was supporting Ross Perot, he was drawing equally uh, from Bill Clinton supporters and George uh, Herbert Walker Bush supporters. Um, it's become a bit of a historical myth that he was the guy that stopped George Herbert Walker Bush getting a second term in office, that his votes were just coming from the Republican side. If you actually look at the exit polling, he was getting a lot of support from the left as well. Um, And Ross Perot, of course, the proto-Trump. I mean, he was this outsider, (laughs) this businessman, this slightly crazy guy that did crazy stuff. And of course, he was uh, foreshadowed the the run of Donald Trump. Look, um, to continue your boxing analogy about round one, I mean, the battle for the soul of the Republican Party, the referee has already stopped the fight, Geraldine. Trump has won. Um, And those moments which we thought could be moments of Trumpian repudiation. January the 6th, obviously, being the classic example of that, became moments of even further Republican radicalization. The attack on democracy didn't stop the moment that police and the National Guard restored order on Capitol Hill. That very night, 
More than half of the House Republicans went back into those chambers that had been invaded and voted to overturn the election, including the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. And the attack on democracy has continued ever since. At state levels, they're passing voter suppression laws. They're mm. doing things that will subvert elections. And another moment of potential Trumpian repudiation, the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, another moment where the Republican Party thought, well, maybe we should see what happens here. Of course, again, this rallying around Trump. Um, he has won that battle. Liz Cheney is now an outlier in the American conservative movement. So you don't think that she represents the sort of now the loyal opposition? You, you just think she's too much, too isolated, do you? Uh, look, I think she represents a significant body in the electorate. I think there are sensible Republicans out there that rejected Trump at the last election. They don't much like Joe Biden. They might be attracted to a Liz Cheney. We, we don't know how that will play out. But I think what's what's really worrying, and Tom has done such brilliant work on this, is to see... Over the last 20 years, how moderate Republicans have been primaried out by more extreme Republicans and and radical Republicans have been primaried out by even more radical Republicans. And I think one of the things that has been shown over this primary season, which is deeply worrying, there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who are kind of fake big lie advocates. They go along with Trump, even though they don't really believe that Joe Biden stole the election. But what you've seen during this primary season, which is really worrying, is you have big lie, true believers, people who really do believe that Trump was swindled out of the election. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen over the past 60 years, really, in the Republican Party is these continual waves of radicalization. It began in 1964 with Barry Goldwater. So we had Goldwaterism, we had Reaganism, we had Gingrichism in the 90s, led by the House leader, uh, Newt Gingrich. We had Tea Partyism, Palinism. We had mm. Trumpism. And now, alas, we've got nihilism. Well, indeed, Tom, it is interesting that uh, others have suggested that most workable political parties around the world learn how to control their extremes. But actually, in the Republicans, the extremes, certainly these days, are writing the narrative. And it is worth, it's worthwhile being reminded of how this has bedeviled the Republicans, which is strange given that they were the party of big money, you know, big decision-making for so many years, regarded as the, the really trustworthy ones on foreign policy and so on and so forth. So how, how do you see, is there any getting out of this? Uh, I wish I had a way out. A decade ago, I wrote a book with Norm Ornstein called it's even worse than it looks i remember that <laughs> it, it it really <laughs> and now it's uh, even worse than it was when we said it was even worse than it looks it uh it's a it's a sad commentary but this is as nick said it's uh in it's been present for a long time it's 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 uh, certainly coming out of uh the the attack on reconstruction in the 19th century and and the importance of race and eventually the 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 sorting of uh, parties by race uh, has made a huge difference in uh, in our politics and and it's the activist it uh, it's not just the wild crazy uh, people that you uh, we had Chuck Grassley, the quintessential establishment Republican senator from Iowa, on 
on television this weekend talking about IRS agents armed with the AK-47s attacking small businessmen because the budget for tax enforcement has increased. I mean, it's just, it's lunacy. And the chairman, uh, Senator Scott of Florida of the of the senatorial campaign committee was speaking in the same language. The, uh, Ted Cruz, it's it's all in one, and there's well, well, no now, that, one it, speaking it, it, like Liz Cheney and the Republican Party leadership. Yeah, cool-headedness. Yes, that's what seems to have gone. In fact, a, a very interesting remark by one commentator said, today's Republican Party is even <laughs> more strongly motivated by what it hates than by necessarily admiring Trump. Now, I found that a very provocative statement, Nick Bryant. I wonder if that's right. You know, that there's something that's like, we're as mad as hell and we're just going to keep talking about it. So Trump is just a sort of cipher for this. I wonder what you think about that. Look, I think negative partisanship has been such a driver of American politics for so many years now. It's the hatred of the opposition rather than the love of your own side. Um, The hatred of Hillary Clinton was such a key factor in getting Donald Trump uh, to victory. And I think that's a a really important point. But, you know, there is this groundswell for Donald Trump. I, I think one of the great analytical mistakes that we made in 2015 and 2016 when we were watching Donald Trump was to use this cliche, he is mounting a hostile takeover of the Republican Party, Geraldine, there was massive buy-in at the grassroots. Mm. And that moment he came down the golden escalator and started railing against Mexican immigrants. I mean, often that's seen as this moment when he established this visceral connection uh, with the people in the conservative movement. But he'd been doing that for years as the untitled leader of the Bertha movement and his attacks on uh, 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 Barack Obama. And that was a classic case. Uh, to go back to your question, You know, by that stage, the Republican Party really didn't stand for much other than its opposition to Barack Obama. So it made complete sense for them to pick as their presidential nominee the most emphatically anti-Obama candidate. And that, of course, was Donald J. Trump. Right. Now, you wrote recently, Nick Bryant, um, that observance of the rule of law is is virtually... a almost akin to a religion in the US, um, despite all, well, I'm going to test whether it, despite all that you say about divisions, that this is a sacred thing. Um, and therefore, this might be something. So the raid on Mar-a-Lago, you know, at the observation of the rule of law, as as the Attorney General outlines it, um, could well be something that looks so incredibly inflammatory, but ultimately will be followed through as something that, you know, where Wherever you are, you you effectively observe the fact that the American rule of law is being enacted. Now, just develop that wood for us, please. Will it cut across all of this protest that you're talking about? Um, I was actually quoting Lincoln. Um, it's nice to be given Lincoln's oh, words, but they, they were they were actually Abraham Lincoln. who okay. spoke of up, upholding the U.S. Constitution and um, the rule of law as the political religion of America. Um, he he spoke about that in 1861. It's actually on the eve of the American Civil War, so a kind of worrying portent there in some ways. Um, but uh, look, I mean, I've been in the camp that thought it's just not worth it prosecuting Trump. There would be such a violent backlash. There are so many violent potentialities, especially now that the American conservative movement essentially has a paramilitary wing. 
in the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all those militia groups. I just thought it was too dangerous. But, you know, watching the January the 6th hearings and seeing the evidence of such flagrant criminality in Trump's attempt to overthrow the election, you couple that with what he was doing in Georgia, you know, asking the Republican Secretary of State there to conjure up an extra 1,600 votes. I mean, if America is a serious country, if the rule of law is to stand for anything, Surely there does have to be a prosecution if that is where the evidence leads. I think there will be a backlash, but there may be some sort of historical lessons that we can draw from the the 1950s and the 1960s when Southern governors who didn't want to desegregate their universities and schools defied federal court orders and Eisenhower and Kennedy um, deployed troops in the South and, and stood them down. And, and at the time, there was this fear there's going to be another sort of Confederate rebellion and we're going to be in a state of civil war. It didn't happen because they asserted the primacy of the law. And in my view, that's what needs to happen now. Um, Tom Mann, is the only hope for those who wish to see some restoration of centrism then that Donald Trump will be pinged one way and the other by all these investigations, much as people say like Al Capone was got with, you know, tax evasion, <laughs> not uh, gun running. Is that, is that some, does that offer some hope? Uh, it's a piece of it. Uh, it's, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for, uh, for getting out of the mess our political system is in is in right now. The governors uh, you talk about are now, sadly, have, have become Trumpist and are as radical in their actions and, and as vehement in pursuing culture wars as anything going on among Trump's uh, loyal, uh, loyal supporters. So this is this is a bigger problem. But remember, uh, uh, victories and losses occur at the margins. Um, our country is divided. Uh, if we had a national popular vote, uh, Republicans uh, under their current ideology and leadership would never be in the White House at all. But we don't. And uh, it's possible to win by seven or 10 million votes in the country and lose the electoral college. It's, uh, it's possible to do similar things in winning majority votes for the Senate and end up uh, uh, with a minority. We have minority rule in this country. And the only hope is, is that the, the reaction of, of uh, mm. January 6th of Mar-a-Lago, but importantly, the, Roe v. Wade decision uh, as well, and the reaction against many people I, uh, uh, to, to much of what has been going on in the culture wars of DeSantis and Hawley and Cruz and the like will, will defy historical records for midterm losses by the, uh, by the president's party and actually allow a democratic victory. It's unlikely, but this is the most unlikely, unlikely time in American <laughs> history. And just a very quick final remark from you, Nick. Oh, look, um, 
Disunion in America has always been the default setting. I mean, it's interesting that Tom mentioned the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. Um, you know, they say that America hasn't been as divided as this since the 1960s. I think there's a real 1960s vibe at the moment, which is really worrying. I don't think we're inexorably leading uh, to a civil war. But I think the best we can hope for with the two Americas at the moment is is a state of peaceful coexistence with occasional violence. And I, I fear that the violence is going to be, the political violence could be, more regular and routine than that. And that, and that that is a real worry. And, and it, it breaks my heart, Geraldine. One of the reasons why I'm sat in Australia this morning rather than sat in America where I was this time last year, um, you know, we had an American daughter um, and we just wanted to protect our American daughter from America. It had just got that bad. And um, it breaks my heart to say that. Mm. That is uh, pretty, Nick, uh, I feel th- the same way as you. It is a pretty awful. It is pretty awful to hear you say that, Nick. I mean, you said it to us before. Okay, Tom Mann from the Brookings and Nick Bryant, author of When America Stopped Being Great. It's a Bloomsbury publication. Thank you both very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, up next, um, a startup newsletter on geopolitics that will make you informed and give you a chuckle, all in the space of five minutes. Look, I know many of you like to keep informed about the world, but if you're like me, sometimes the sheer amount of information just overwhelms. You may yearn for someone to simplify, which is what we try to do here, or even to have a bit of a laugh about all this serious business. Well, John Fowler is a former Australian diplomat and international lawyer who set out to tackle just this. Two years ago, in a gloomy London winter, he texted an old friend and asked if she wanted to drag geopolitics kicking and screaming into the 21st century. And spoiler alert, she said yes. John is now the co-founder of International Intrigue. It's a newsletter that that mixes geopolitical briefings with jokes, memes and plenty of insights. John Fowler, hello. Hi there. It's uh, it's delightful to be here. I'm thrilled to have a chat. I'm sort of envious of this. I think this is a wonderful venture. You know, what was the turning point for you in deciding to do it? I don't think there was any one turning point. I think I think it was um, an addition of things. One was I, I was in London uh, studying for a, a Masters of Business Administration and sort of looked around the, the media environment and didn't see anything uh, in this space that kind of really stood out to to me or my colleagues. So there was a, a need for this kind of, you know, geopolitical kind of analysis. The second thing is I think I've always been very passionate about global affairs and communicating those things kind of easily and simply. And so, you know, in the lockdown, because obviously London was was in mm. deep lockdown in the middle of 2020, I started writing and uh, it kind of snowballed. You know, you mentioned the, the texting my friend Helen, my co-founder, and that real at that point, it really was a situation where we were kind of like, well, I'm in lockdown. We've always thought about writing a blog or, you know, a newsletter just more for us and, and for our friends than anyone else to, you know, they say writing is, is the best way to figure out what you think about things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I ran out of excuses in, in my apartment to not do it, I think, is the start of it. <laughs> and now this side hustle has become a full-time venture. That's right. I, I think it immediately resonated with enough people for us to go, huh, maybe there's there's something here and 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 to think a bit more seriously about what it could become. At the start we were only doing it every week. Um and it was very sort of personal. It was our reflections, it was our kind of experience. 
we went away and thought about what a business would would look like and came back with something sort of resembling what we're doing now. Well, I'm, I'm going to come back to that. But so, so how to get into the weeds, how many subscribers do you have? Yeah, uh, we're about 12,000 now, a bit over 12,000. Oh. Um, yeah, for our daily briefing. So we've, we've, we've hired a, a writer um, who is in London and she kind of writes a first sort of cut of things that we think might be interesting. And then Helen and I edit it every day and kind of punch it up into into what you see uh, in the in, in the inbox but it yeah it's a, it's it's a lot of work particularly when you're trying to build a business around it at the same time right like you're doing you know more than half your day on content and then the rest of your day is meetings and trying to raise money and doing all the other things you, you've got to do in business are you paying yourself a salary yet not yet, but that is, fingers crossed, that is uh, within Imminent, the next couple of weeks, fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very good to hear. Was there a gap in the market, do you think? I mean, because there are like quite a lot of very good podcasts around about this now, for instance. Uh, there are newsletters, though they're often slightly clinical. Well, I, you, you put your finger on it there, Geraldine. I think that, that they tend to be a little bit clinical, um, a little bit by the foreign policy uh, geopolitics community for the geopolitics community. And I I sort of alluded to it at the start where I said I was sitting in London with with my MBA colleagues, you know, some of the smartest folks I've I've met, but going into consulting, banking, um, you know, other kinds of business and didn't necessarily have a background in geopolitics. Nothing resonated with them to say, hey, how do I get across these issues Without needing to have a degree in IR or a master's in in international politics, what what does this jargon mean? What does that like? Why should I care about all this? And obviously, you know, we're, we're sitting we're sitting sort of in 2022, and I think three or four years ago, this might be a very different conversation. But we've seen newsletters successfully um, engage younger audiences on topics that are, you know, maybe perhaps a little bit more traditionally clinical, as you said. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Morning Brew being the American uber successful newsletter that did that for finance news. So it's this idea of translating what I think can be a little bit archaic, I think unnecessarily archaic, a little bit technical, and we started with the, 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 the mission of making it enjoyable to read, waking up and not going, oh, gosh, I've got to, I've got to read my briefing this morning. But waking up and going, oh, I, I'm looking forward to, you know, a, a joke and learning something and, you know, five minutes well spent of my day. Who, who typically are your readers? Well, we have a mix. So I would say the typical reader is somewhere between their late 20s and, and, and late 30s. They're a, a, maybe a professional in a consulting firm or a lawyer or, um, you know, generally kind of professional services, that kind of stuff. Well, they're not all foreign um, affairs wonks. No, they're, they're, I mean, we've, we've got a fair few of those, but I think it's probably a little bit too simplistic. If, if you live and breathe you know, China policy, well, mm-hmm. what we're covering, you already know it. Um, you might find it a, a nice summary um, and you might find it more engaging than some of the other things, but there's nothing, you know, that you, we're going to teach you. It's it's more designed for folks who work in globally exposed industries and need to know about what's going on, but don't have the time, as I said before, to dedicate, you know, hours and hours and hours of, of thinking and, and reading mm-hmm. to that. And we, and we actually have a lot of, I would say, readers in, a, in their 50s and 60s too who, who say, oh, yeah, I've been an economist reader for 
decades, but I really enjoy the kind of fresh takes and the fact that you guys don't take yourselves so seriously as the economist, you know, with, with all their kind of very serious where, where, you know, from the 1850s and corn laws and that kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) What I have noticed is how you say cover a big news event uh, like Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, which you gave the tongue in cheek headline of grandmother nearly causes World War III. But then you go on to explain you know, what's happening in a place not covered by mainstream media. In in the same newsletter, for instance, about Pelosi, there were updates on Azerbaijan and India's battle against big tech. Now, obviously, you're trying to move beyond the main news roundabout, are you? Is, is that be fair to say? Yeah, a- absolutely. I think we, you know, we, we do a couple of things. We stay away from domestic politics as much as is humanly possible. And we try to find stories from places that people don't necessarily think about. And if not explain why they matter to, to you, at least put them in the context of, of what's going on. So the Azerbaijan story um, that you referenced there, we sort of tried to contextualize that in with the the Russia Ukraine situation and and the fact that Russia is you know a bit of a declining power in that region and perhaps we can expect more of these kinds of conflicts to break out so it's it's more about getting beyond the front page stories but not making people feel bored or questioning why it's relevant to them and just sort of say hey here's what happened and you know now you know that so file it away Now, of course, there have been calls for DFAT to do something like this for a while, to reach out to to, to the digital world. I mean, that's been quite a sort of um, debate. I wonder if, in fact, this is achieving precisely that. Well, I mean, that's that would be that would be lovely, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> you know, I think, I mean, this is me speaking in my very much in my personal capacity. I've got plenty of wonderful ex colleagues there. I th- I've always thought that DFAT doesn't harness its talent um, to the full extent it could. And I think this kind of thing would be a really, really great thing for DeFi to do. And, and obviously, they they would be in a great position to be able to do it because they this we, we're really doing nothing more than as diplomats we used to do, which is interpret what's going on somewhere else for an audience. So In the public realm, which, of course, the diplomats don't. Is this valuable to companies? Like you talked about the people who are subscribing, which is free thus far, isn't it? But in what way might it fill a gap for, for companies that nothing else quite does? The way we're thinking about that is there's plenty of desktop analysis uh, products from, you know, DC, London, Canberra, the, these kinds of things. You, you know, you can hire a consultancy to do that. We we have this idea that perhaps we could reimagine what a foreign correspondent model looks like um, in, in the 21st century. So can we build a network of experts and writers and podcasters and short video makers from right around the world to, to sort of tell the stories and, and write the analysis from where it's happening? So if a company said, oh, well, we, we're opening a lithium mine in Chile. Well, maybe you, you come into intrigue because we've got a couple of folks on the ground, locals on the ground in Chile who know what's what's going on and, and we can connect you or, or something like that. But the fundamental idea being removing the layers between what's going on in a place and the people who need to know what's going on in that place, taking out to the extent that's possible the editors and and the desktop analysis in DC and all these kinds of things and making that connection direct. So in other words, there's a value for, say, people in banking or engineering or consulting in knowing about geopolitics explained in more than an abstract way. That's really what you're saying. There's a real uh, value in it for them. And I think particularly 
from now into the future. I think we're sort of, you know, one of my grand ideas about the world is that the sort of relative 30 years of geopolitical predictability since the end of the Cold War is no more. I think that's pretty pretty clear uh, over the last couple of years that um, we're moving back into a world that is is multipolar that is is much less predictable um, you know American influence not is not declining in my view but is at least won't be as predictable and a lot of you know if you're thinking it from a, a finance a financial perspective there'll be a lot of edge to be had in understanding how those dynamics play out. And if you're thinking about it from a, an industrial perspective, understanding how those dynamics are playing out could save you money, could you know help you mitigate risk. The, you know, the long story short is I don't think that many places in the next twenty to thirty years will be business as usual. Um, so you know, people people have to know about this. In, information at the end of the day is 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 king. Now. Are you seeking some form of funding so that you can set this up on a more permanent basis? Yeah, so we're we're in the middle or towards the end of raising a seed round at at the moment. Um, we've got a lead investor who's come on board and you know is helping us uh, get the money that we need to sort of go out to to build this. So I think we're you know we're, we'll we'll get where we need to get in in fundraising, but we're in the middle of that process right now. And as you say, the idea is to be able to pay myself. <laughs> Well, John, the very best of luck. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Geraldine. It's been a pleasure. And John Fowler's the co-founder with Helen Zung of the newsletter International Intrigue. Well, up next, the outgoing politician who dragged governments into the customer service age. It's not often politicians are both praised to the hilt for their reforms while simultaneously calling time on their career on their own terms and all happening in the same week. But that's what happened to a rather unusual Australian politician, Victor Dominello, who announced earlier this week to considerable public surprise that he would retire from his role as New South Wales Digital Government and Customer Service Minister and not recontest the election in March next year. Now, Saturday Extra doesn't often focus on state politics and individual ministers, but Mr Dominello's widely seen even by political competitors as having led Australia via changes in his state of New South Wales into the digital age with government service delivery. And he's gone on the record this week with a memorable quote, I don't like politics, but I enjoy the policy. I simply couldn't resist inviting him onto the show. Hello there. Good morning. A politician doesn't really enjoy the politics, only the policy. Now, I wonder how many of your colleagues feel the same way, do you guess? That's a really good question, Geraldine. I don't know the answer to that. I should probably get a survey. But um, look, it's the truth. I I don't enjoy the day-to-day politics because it's, for me, it's so... um, I know, tedious. It's so, it's just... That's how we all feel. (laughs) It doesn't inspire. One of my favourite quotes and I I constantly reflect on it, is uh, from Eleanor Roosevelt. And she says something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, big minds talk about big ideas, uh, medium minds talk about events, and small minds talk about people, i.e. gossip. And so often in the political realm, it's just about personality politics is talking about people, which is not very inspiring. How do you avoid the politics, though? I mean, I presume it means you don't really have a big power ambition. You don't carry the proverbial field marshal's bat on in your knapsack. Would that be a fair oh, comment? That's a very fair comment. And look, you, 
I, I guess in politics you you need those field marshals. You need people to you know gather and organise and um, make sure people are you know aligned. That's just just the way of the world. But um, you know I haven't chosen that path. Uh- you do emphasise that in order to bring in your reforms, which we'll talk about, you did have to have two key features at work. You had to have cabinet oversight and separate funding. Now, I assume some politics were at work in achieving that little duo. Uh, true. I had to use some political capital uh, to get those initiatives across the line. So, you know, I don't, I don't operate in a, in a vacuum. Uh, I'm not a secretary of a department. I need to work with my colleagues. But what I try to avoid, uh, Geraldine, and I've tried to avoid over the last 14 years, is personality politics. I, you know, I tackle the issue rather than the person. I, you know, I don't get involved in rumours and scuttlebutt and the like. And hopefully that engenders some degree of respect and that in itself builds up some capital. So people tried to get you in and you simply just gently push them away, do you? Oh, well, like, I just I just don't like gossip. I don't like rumour. I just, you know, I'd rather focus on tech and policy. You know, that's the type of stuff that inspires me. Like, I'm a very boring person to have over for a dinner party <laughs> because, you know, I don't have much gossip on other people. Um, you know, I, I, I'll talk about tech and the next... Uh, innovation in in digital. Um, So, yeah. Uh, But surely there was scepticism in getting, you you must have had to do some clever footwork to get over the scepticism. So much taxpayers' money involved. I mean, after all, these sorts of issues bring down companies or bring down, um, you know, managing directors because it's just eye-watering amounts of money. So I'm really intrigued as to how you got that over the line. Uh, I think it's a quirk of fate and great leadership in the sense that, not mine, uh, Gladys. So Gladys, Gladys is Berger a dear, clan, Yeah, of course. Yeah, so she's a very dear friend of mine. Um, and, you know, she she gave me a licence to reform. Uh, and as the Premier, she did all the hard yards in terms of the political capital. Um, so, you know, I managed to convince her or, you know, encourage her to support us on this journey. And uh, to her eternal credit, she... She gave us the licence to create the Department of Customer Service and we started the Oversight Committee and we got money in the budget and uh, and here we are. So what do you consider your main achievement? That's a really good question, uh, Geraldine, because uh, let me rephrase it. It's not my achievement for starters. It's a collective achievement. I am a very, very small part of a, a genuinely transformational team uh, and I accept that and I understand that. So what have we achieved? I think um, the the overall uplift of digital maturity uh, in New South Wales, and hopefully that translates across Australia as you know, QR codes and digital driver's licences and digital birth certificates are coming downstream right across the country. Well, you even had um, the Victorians basically acknowledging a little bit, just a few... Uh, weeks ago that New South Wales was clearly in in the forefront and leading the way, which was quite something coming from Victoria, I suppose. Um, but so it's this business of suggesting to the citizen that digital engagement, a digital a connected digital, uh, digitally connected up government, joined up government can serve their interests. Now, I don't think that was a given at all that you would persuade people of that, but I think you have. Well, and can I also say that it's not just the citizen. This is more than just 
serving or providing optimal service delivery for citizens because refugees are not citizens, uh, tourists are not citizens, visa holders are not citizens. This is about providing high-quality service delivery for all people that are in our great southern land. Uh, and you're right, traditionally uh, along government lines of architecture and thinking, we expect to, for people to evolve and revolve around us, the government, because we're the centre of the solar system. But what we have to do is flip that so we make the individual, the customer in this case, the you know the centre of the solar system and government services should evolve and revolve around the changing, ever-changing needs of the individual. Yeah, and you say the the real yield of that is much more trust um, towards government from citizens, which is a very interesting prediction. Now, do you, do you think that has occurred? I believe so, and and it's not just me that says it. Uh, we've got independent reports uh, saying that the trust levels have increased around service delivery. You know, I, I think just to your our previous interview, uh, the, the geopolitical world is literally recontouring as we speak, and and this decade is going to be unbelievably choppy, for want of a better word, um, and and the landscape is going to be changed for decades to come, and that that's just a plain reality. And the digital world is just in, in you know, just completely linked uh, to our future. And there's three things that we need to do to build trust. It's the trinity of trust. Uh, it's the who, the what, and the why. You know, because I can trust you, Geraldine, because I've known you, I've followed you for many, many years, and I, I know your values, I know who you are, uh, so I can trust you. But if you're an avatar on the other side of the world, can I trust you? So we need to build trust around identity. We need to build trust, digital trust around credentials. You could just tell me over the phone right now that you're a doctor, but how do I know? So I need to, you know, trust, uh, particularly in a world where we're doing more telehealth and other um, forms of uh, qualifications that we need services online. So we need to do that. And then we need to make sure that the service is trustworthy, i.e. you protect my privacy, you regard my security, you're inclusive, you're transparent. These are the th main ingredients for a digital future in a democracy. Is it easier, final question, I suppose, um, is it easier to do this on a state level than a federal level? I mean, you know, the glittering prize, you say, is a full-service digital identity for individual citizens. But, you know, the, 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 the federal government has tried this and it, it, it can't get there. Uh, another great question, Geraldine. Look, ideally, a lot of this is done by the feds because, you know, I'm, I've, look, I love New South Wales, but first and foremost, I'm an Australian and and if I'm moving around the country, I, I don't want to have a million different apps and a million different types of services. So ideally, it's driven by the feds. But look, I think states are in that Goldilocks zone. We're not too big, not too small. So we can actually do reform. And that's why I've been very blessed to have had this opportunity, particularly over the last five or seven years, to really drive the digital agenda. And then hopefully other states in that federated model and territories in that federated model can say, yep, I like that. Uh, why don't we try it as well? All right, Victor Dominello. Well, look, thank you very much indeed. And uh, I, we've got you, I think, for another um, 217 days. <laughs> okay. Thank you for joining us. Good on you, Geraldine. Thank you. Victor Dominello, the Minister for Customer Service and Digital Government, MP for Ride, who will quit politics next year due to some health issues in his family.
Well, up next, a vibrant trove of art spanning the past four decades from China and the Chinese diaspora. The standard Australian government response to difficult relations between us and the People's Republic of China is to say, China's changed, not us. Now, whatever you think of that reply, the characteristic of change is well and truly on display via the country's contemporary artists and vividly charted via an exhibition of contemporary Chinese art which opened last night at the Bendigo Gallery. 80 works from the Jeff Raby collection, yes, the former ambassador and well-known commentator who developed a passion for the work of emerging artists during two separate stints in China, first in the 1980s and then as ambassador and private consultant in the early 2000s. Now he's hoping a new generation of Australians will come to appreciate the mixed emotions captured by a range of artists over the last tumultuous generation in China. Welcome back to Saturday Extra, Jeff. Good morning, Geraldine. What do you hope that Australian observers might glean from this passionate collecting of yours? Well, first of all, an appreciation of the extent to which uh, economic reform and uh, China's open-door policies have utterly transformed the cultural landscape in China. And from that, I think a better appreciation of contemporary China, what it's like today, and to do away with a lot of the really unfortunate stereotypes that we see uh, bandied around in the popular media and, and, and in the pubs and so on about China. Uh, it, it, the collection presents a much more complex reality, uh, but also there's a lot of fun and nuance in it as well. Yes, I'm going to come to that. Uh, generally, would you say that the art leads or follows the incredible twists and turns of Chinese, of Chinese culture? Uh, both. Uh, and and. That's just the nature of the interaction between art and society anywhere in the world. You know, when I first went to Beijing in the early 80s uh, and started to see the flickerings of the contemporary, uh, Chinese contemporary art movement, I was reminded very much of the histories I'd read about the uh, Impressionists in the uh, late 19th century in France, not part of the academy, not part of the mainstream, on the fringes of society. Um, and, and having to really muscle their way in uh, to, to society and, and to the establishment. And you see this very much, I think, in China over the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, did, did they anticipate the crackdown, for instance, of 1989, which I know you say is a, is a pivotal year in a range of ways, but, I mean, did they see there was so much hope and so much excitement and et cetera, and possibly as naivety as you sort of allude to when you're writing about it, but did they see that coming or not? No, not at all. I mean, it, it, it was a naive, it was a wonderful period because of the, the innocence and um, 89, June 4th, 89, was um, the end of innocence. Uh, and the art movement changed fundamentally after that um, and in many ways became a much uh, clearer uh, and more pointed uh, uh, mirror on society with um, the cynical realism movement highlighting the contradictions in China between uh, the one-party uh, state and its propaganda, and the reality of mass consumerism, uh, and a society in which, as uh, Deng Xiaoping said, to get rich is glorious, mm. 
and uh, the artist moved into this very unique Chinese um, uh, style of art called cynical realism from the uh, mid-1990s. It's not exactly easy art, therefore, to look at. I mean, it's dark and it certainly can be affecting, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it can leave you feeling a bit bleak, I think. Well, it can, but there's, there's, there's great humour in it. I mean, look, there's, there's uh, 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 Lita Pung's uh, painting I've got in the collection of a pink pig smiling out at the viewer with a bright yellow background in a spacesuit. And this is just classic um, irony uh, that's used throughout to, to, to criticise uh, an authoritarian uh, system. And so with uh, this painting, uh, what's going on is that uh, the artist is making fun of China's Communist Party's uh, prestige projects. And when I first saw that in a restaurant in Artist Village back in 2007, I said, I've got to go to this guy's studio because I know what I'm going to find. And I found what I expected. Little happy pigs building the uh, railway to Lhasa, building the Three Gorges Down, <laughs> shopping malls. Uh, yeah. And, and there's a lot of that. And it's so uh, reminiscent of what happened in the old Soviet Union as well, where through irony, art can challenge and criticise the system. Actually, so what, there's a lot of that. Yeah. What have been some of the key influences then, would you say, on these younger Chinese artists? Well, first up, I, what I would say, and what makes the Chinese contemporary art scene so special, is that most of these artists are incredibly well trained. You know, they've gone through the, the most of them have gone through the art academies and uh, technically are at an extremely high level, more than you'd find elsewhere. Uh, and that's just the nature of the pedagogical system in China. Um, and then there are two powerful influences. One, I think, is uh, uh, Soviet propaganda art, uh, and particularly. All these artists were fed a huge dose of that during the Cultural Revolution, of course. Um, but then classical, uh, traditional Chinese techniques, motives, themes, and so on. Uh, and, and then thirdly, I guess, the exposure to Western art, and particularly the use of uh, oil, um, acrylics, canvas, uh, those sorts of materials. What, what did they use before? Well, it was uh, it's classical Chinese painting, pen and ink, uh, brush, oh. uh, uh, rice paper scrolls. So are they accused, if they do notably draw on the West, say, are they accused of being bourgeois? In other words, I'm really keen to know how does the establishment, the um, um, political establishment, regard all this? Yeah, for a long time, uh, for a long time it was ignored until it couldn't be. And the first uh, ever official exhibition of Chinese avant-garde art took place in February 1989 at the... Uh, National Art Gallery in Beijing, and that will be remembered forever by the artist Xiao Lu, who brought a gun with live ammunition into the exhibition and shot her own installations, which were made of cardboard, and the whole thing was closed down under massive controversy. Uh, but for decades, uh, this has been seen to be fringe. But I recall having a lunch with the Minister for Culture at the uh, residence of the embassy back in um, would have been about 2009. And he was intrigued by the art that I had on the walls and we talked about it. And I said, look, I'll take you to an artist village, 798. It's very famous. Many of your listeners would have been there. And said to him, look, I'll show you around and, and introduce you to some of these artists. And he said to me, ah, we still haven't made up our mind on this. <laughs> It's political pop. Uh, <laughs> and, 
So, but look, after that, the next period after that is, is the mass commercialization of it. When it and, became terribly uh, expensive. Exactly. And, 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 and an industry and, and of global standing. And uh, uh, I think the authorities made up their mind and they saw it as a, uh, a good money spinner. Okay. Look, um, before I let you go, uh, the general emotions surrounding the relationship between China and the rest of the world at the moment obviously absolutely came to a head with the Taiwan Straits. Can you see a way for more even-handed or shall we say cooling the temperature of these discussions? How do you see that happening if, if it can be done? Well, I think it's very difficult for, for the moment. Uh, it's particularly fraught because of the domestic politics uh, in the US that are driving a lot of this. Uh, also, China is in a very you know, rigid authoritarian period. Uh, it waxes and wanes, but we're running up to the 20th Party Congress. Yes, I'm talking uh, about everybody cooling their heads, not just... In October, November. Yeah, and, 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 and so there's little room, I think, for flexibility or compromise anywhere, and it's really an issue for the great powers. But having said that, Geraldine, I think that the way the Australian government uh, has responded to the uh, most recent crisis in Taiwan Straits, and remember, this is not the first. We've had it in '96. We had, when I first went to Beijing as ambassador in 2007, everyone expected conflict uh, between China and uh, the United States over Taiwan. Uh, this is a very difficult period, but I think the Australian government, with its uh, calls for restraint, uh, to uh, lower tensions uh, is, is, is basically got the message right as far as a small country like Australia can contribute to this issue. Mm. All right, Jeff Raby. Well, look, thank you very much indeed for joining us. My pleasure, Geraldine. Thanks for having me on. Jeff Raby, the uh, former ambassador to China, and you can see the art collection, the Jeff Raby collection, at the Bendigo Art Gallery in Victoria, and it's on 80 works. It's on until February. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Duke. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.